I think I've made mention before that there'll be... I don't... You'll not be disappointed in glory. I know that. But sometimes I think, if we're not singing that in glory, I feel a little bit like it will, wouldn't be appropriate that that's perfect to be singing in glory. I'm sure there'll be, and I know, in fact, from Scripture, the themes of a hymn like this will be sung, but we get attached to certain hymns. They bring certain memories into our hearts as well. And this was one of the hymns early on in my Christian life that really gripped me in terms of the power, the simple truths, and the profound realities of what Christ had done for me and the wonder of the Son of God, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Every line packed with profound truth. Oh, may our hearts ever melt at the reality of the love of Christ for us. Turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke, endeavoring to receive profit from this gospel given to us by inspiration of the Spirit of God. And we have come to the ninth chapter. And last Lord's Day, we saw the feeding of the 5,000, which takes us to the end of verse 17. So we will hone in on the verses we want to deal with tonight, which begins at verse 18. Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 18 through verse 22. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. Amen. May the Lord bless this truth to us, these verses. May He be pleased to instruct our hearts tonight as He sees fit. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's again seek the Lord. Our God, we're thankful for what Thou hast done for us. We are able to say from the heart, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray that that praise, that hallelujah of our souls will never fade. But I pray for every one of us, please, dear God, whatever happens in our lives, may the hallelujah, what a Savior, never fade. Strengthen our love for Him, our adoration for Him, Help us to never lose the wonder of what He has done for us. We pray tonight that something of that wonder may grip our hearts afresh, that we will be taught from the Word of God, but not just taught in terms of the instruction for our minds, but we pray for a word for our souls. Help me, Lord, to be thy messenger with thy message. Thou knowest the need of every heart. Use thy word to extend thy kingdom. Fill us with the Holy Ghost. May even, we even know tonight something of the Spirit falling upon us. May there be a hush. May there be a sense of eternity. Hear and answer prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
The scene before us, reading from verse 18, opens with our Lord being alone with the exception of His disciples. And the question that we should immediately ask is, where are all the people? If you remember last Lord's Day, as I've already mentioned tonight, we dealt with the feeding of the 5,000. And with the feeding of the 5,000, it was 5,000 men. So there were women and there were children. So there was 10,000, 15,000, maybe more, gathered on that occasion. And after that event, Luke brings us immediately then, after the gathering of the fragments that remained, the 12 baskets, verse 18 then opens, and it came to pass as he was alone, praying. So where have they gone? That should be the question that comes to us. Well, in truth, Luke actually skips a fair chunk of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many weeks, maybe even months, we don't know for sure in terms of a specific period of time, but certainly a significant time is in view here. And if you were to catch up on that part of his ministry, you'd have to read Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 12, and also in conjunction with that, Mark chapter 6, verse 45, through Mark chapter 8, verse 26. And there you will find added details that are not recorded by Luke at this juncture, at this time. So you would find in that, of course, the the night after the feeding of the 5,000, when Peter walks on water along with the Lord Jesus Christ, the discourse of the bread of life that we looked at momentarily at the end of our meeting last Lord's Day, which came the day after in John chapter 6, his interaction with the scribes and Pharisees, his visit to Tyre and Sidon where he met with the woman of Canaan, his visit to Decapolis where he healed a man who had a speech impediment and was deaf, and then the feeding of the 4,000 also was in view in that time before you come to this particular portion, this time of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So we might ask, well, why does Luke glean over that or miss that and pass over all of those details? And I can't, I can't tell you for sure But I may hint at the idea by suggesting that Luke is driving towards something that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that what's in view is, who is Jesus Christ? Why is there all this confusion about Him, and what are men saying in relation to Him? We have had, through this entire gospel, the testimony of angels, of priests, of godly senior saints, of God the Father, of prophets of Satan, of demons, and great sinners testifying who Jesus is. And yet still the question remains, who is He? So if you go back to verse 9 of this chapter, you will see that from the perspective of Herod, who said, John, have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And you can see from verse 7 that he was perplexed. He's perplexed. Again, despite all the testimony, everything that had been done, all that had been said, still there is this lack of certainty in the hearts of some. So Luke then moves right across to get to this portion that we've read, which answers, at least in part, the question and shows that the disciples had no uh, lack of understanding, at least in relation to who He is, and they were prepared to confess boldly. And again, they had witnessed, they had witnessed all that happened, especially what we referred to last time when the thousands left the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6. They had witnessed all of that, and they remain resolved, and everything that had transpired, they are still there, and we find Jesus alone praying, His disciples only with Him. Before we get to the inquiry, Luke again notes that Christ is praying. Now, this isn't the first time. We have at the baptism, Luke recording, unlike the other Gospels, that at his baptism, he was praying. We have also the Lord Jesus recorded as praying in the wilderness in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, and also in a mountain all night in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. So, Luke is focusing on this, at least he is, he is at various times through his record, he is reminding us He's not giving every account of the prayer life of the Lord Jesus, but He is reminding us. So you're reading through it, and over and over again, He just reminds you there were these seasons where He prayed. Why does He record this? Without this little detail, we might wonder, how could He do what He did? How could Jesus do what He did? 
And at least in part, and we'll look at something else later on, but at least in part, when Luke reminds us that Jesus Christ prayed frequently at various times through his ministry, he is reminding us that he was sustained by this, that he must wait before God to be strengthened for ministry. There's no getting away from that. Jesus Christ did not simply traverse through each day of his life hoping that he would have enough spiritual strength to face his trials and the difficulties and all that would come his way. So we learn the same. We learn the same. We we should know. We should know beyond shadow of doubt that we must be a people who wait on God. When we think of the ministries of this church and the needs that are surrounding us no, no matter what we're engaging in, for parents for the various ministries that are done by this church, by the lives of God's people who are living before a perishing world, you know, I I mentioned it in prayer, you know as I know the sense of weakness, the sense of inability, the feeling as if it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't seem to penetrate the dull hearts of men, it doesn't matter how much I I endeavor to, to, to witness or to help people understand, my arguments fail, my efforts seem to come to nothing. It seems so hard to get people to just stop and think about eternity. And Jesus did not simply go around frustrated by this. He was constantly waiting before the Father, praying, interceding, bringing matters of concern before Him in prayer. And so the disciples had the privilege of learning the pattern of the Savior's life. And I can imagine people asking, where does He get His spiritual power from? And the disciples would reply, if you saw him pray, you wouldn't have to ask that question. So, after this, he then asks them, saying, whom say the people that I am? And then you have this interaction, this inquiry, this matter of confession. What is it that you have to say about me? And in one sense, we might Look at this simply as as a test of genuine conversion. It's not the test. People could respond correctly to this. Devils could respond correctly to this question. And as I've said, there are many, many who responded rightly to who Jesus Christ is, and yet they weren't converted, but it is one of the tests. And again, in contrast with the rest of the people, the disciples are being put in the spotlight. Jesus Christ is asking them directly, what do you say? What do you believe? And by their confession, by their resolve to proclaim who Jesus Christ is, they pass at least one of the tests of genuine conversion, what it is to really know the Lord. So I want us to think about a test of genuine conversion and see, first of all, that you must know and reject the ideas of the world. You must know and reject the ideas of the world. In verse 18 again, his disciples were with him and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, and said, The answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. Now, we're familiar with this language, aren't we? If you go back up to verse 7, you see with the exchange in relation to Herod, we had language like this. Verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. So the disciples are aware of everything Herod's aware of. So this is what's spreading. This is what Herod heard. This is what the disciples hear is, are hearing as they keep their ear to the ground. And you remember they were sent out to minister in the various towns and villages of Galilee. And so they were hearing, they were experiencing the response of the people, and they're able to give a solid, sound testimony as to what it is that people are saying. The reasons why people were still skeptical. They had witnessed the people who wanted to make him a king and then on the next day reject him. They had heard all of the differing opinions. They were familiar with everything that was even coming to the ears of Herod. And the people had said many things. It wasn't just this. They didn't just say that he was one of the prophets. I mean, this is coming from those who are trying to understand, trying to assimilate all that they're seeing or hearing, and they then lean to this idea that he must be a prophet. At the very least, he's a prophet. But that wasn't the only thing that people were saying. 
You go through the Gospels, you'll see the kind of things that were being said about the Lord Jesus Christ. They said he had an unclean spirit, Mark 3.30. They said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, Matthew 9.34. They called him Beelzebub, Matthew 10.25. They said he was a glutton, Matthew 11, 18 and 19, and a wine-bibber in the same passage. They said that he violated the Sabbath, Matthew 12, verse 2, that he had a demon in John 7, verse 20, that he was a Samaritan, John 8, 48. They called him a sinner, John 9, 24, and they referred to him as a deceiver, Matthew 27, 63. And this is just a, just a, a, a little gleaning of the kind of things that they said. All sorts of things were said about the Lord Jesus because the world always has their own ideas about the Son of God. You have, firstly, we might consider religious ideas. Those ideas that are held within the, the realm or remit of religion. False Christianity can have all sorts of ideas about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Arianism rejects the full deity of Jesus Christ. Docetism rejects the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Nestorianism denies the union of the two natures, saying they are divided. Eutychianism denies the union of the two natures by Christ, saying they're mixed. Marcionism rejects the Old Testament altogether and the parts of the Bible that they don't like. You move into other religions. Islam believes in the virgin birth, that he worked miracles and ascended bodily into heaven, but denies his deity and his death. Mormonism in the Kingdom Hall, the Russellites, the Jehovah's Witnesses, teach that he is a created being. Baha'i teaches that prophets like Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, and Abraham were pre-existent beings just like Jesus, equivalent to Jesus. And there are all sorts of religious ideas, many different ideas about Jesus Christ going from an outright rejection of Him, a denial of who He is, to a distortion of who He claimed to be. Turn for a moment to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. This is one of the dangers that raised its head very early on in the church. That just because people were preaching the name of Jesus did not necessarily mean that they were correct in what they were saying. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The apostle writes, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you, into the grace of Christ, onto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, should I not be the servant of Christ? I should not be the servant of Christ, pardon me. So you see the apostle, as he enters into a, an apologetic to clarify the gospel in terms of what it is to be justified before God, part of the problem Part of the issue is not just you're, you're, they're, they're just getting one little part wrong in terms of what it is to be justified. It's the heart of the gospel. They're misrepresenting Jesus Christ. They're preaching another gospel. It's not the gospel slightly, just, you know, a differing area that's not really of much consequence, but has huge significance. And what they're saying, what they're preaching, what they're teaching is having an impact upon the souls of men, and it cannot be tolerated. And God's curse is upon them. So they faced it in the first century. They faced this experience of, of men taking certain truths. I mean, this, this isn't preaching to the heathens. This is preaching to the church, and they're imbibing of another gospel. They're taking in and receiving of that which appeared to be true, but was not. So there are always, always distorted views about Jesus Christ. And so here, as we consider this passage and the Lord is asking, whom say the people that I am, it's an important question. It looks at the culture, it looks at the wider world and asks the question, what are people saying about Jesus Christ? I hope that you're not taken in by what the world has to say about Jesus Christ. 
I trust that whenever you come to a sense of understanding about who Jesus Christ is, you go to the source of truth. I have said this before, but I I need to hammer this. I need to make sure this is clearly understood by you all, especially by those of you who are young, especially by those of you who who watch the the shifting, uh, changing, uh, present, current times in which we live, where especially in that college age period, which has always been an important time in the life. When people go to college and they begin to, to, to be challenged and think about what it is that they believe and who they are and various other aspects of identity, that now you go there and there, there is nothing, nothing solid. And when it comes to matter of religion, issues of religion, you will find all sorts of people who say they believe in Jesus Christ and they want you to accept them, they want you to agree with them, but they believe another gospel and they preach another gospel. So you may go to a Christian union, a Christian fellowship. I don't know if you have them. I'm assuming universities and colleges have those kind of things. Even the, the secular ones and the ungodly ones have little gatherings and fellowships and fraternities for, for professing Christians, and you go into them, and all of a sudden you realize that we, we are not on the same page. And here's the temptation, that you, you're tempted to accept their distortion of the truth. So we are not to do this. Jesus Christ is no time for this. The question, whom say the people that I am, is asked because the answer matters. What you answer to this matters. What the world says is relevant. And if you're listening to the world, you stand to be misled, misguided, and ultimately, you may be damned. So there are religious ideas that the world has in relation to Jesus, but there are secular ideas as well. The evolutionists have their various ideas about Jesus Christ, don't they? Some of them want to marry the gospel with evolutionary theory, bring the Bible and evolutionary theory together, and pass it off as, a, as legitimate Christianity. Others, of course, will dismiss Christ altogether, have no time for Him. The relativists, they deny the moral and ethical absolutes that for so long we have been agreed upon that natural law even inclines our minds to understand and yet they will reject it, believing that the truth is whatever you believe the truth to be. If enough people believe that one plus one does not equal two, then that's their truth. And that sounds ludicrous, but it's only ludicrous if you haven't been paying attention to our present day. And there are some that go onto campuses and they ask these questions and they, they deal with young people asking them, you know, the simple things that you would imagine everyone would agree with. And they're saying, well, trust whatever you want it to be. Trust whatever you believe it to be. I remember watching one particular video with this, this short, this guy about five foot eight and blonde hair and white. And he said, you know, I believe I'm six foot three, an African-American and something else he added to that. And the, the girl looked at him and said, well, it's, you know, whatever you, whatever you want to believe, that's, that's, that's up to you. And I wouldn't reject, wouldn't deny, wouldn't say, you're wrong, even politely. But this is the world we're living in. This is, this is the secular culture. This is, this is what we're living in when people would ask the question, whom say people that I am? What does the world have to say about Jesus Christ? The answer comes back, whatever you want to believe. It doesn't have to be specific. Don't get specific. Just, just whatever you determine, that's, that's okay. That's truth. So Jesus is true if you believe him to be true. But he is not if you don't believe him to be. Of course, then this nonsense infiltrates the church. And they begin to treat Christian teaching as if it's relative. So abortion is no longer wrong. Marriage is no longer limited to man and woman. Transgenderism is a discovery of who God made you to be. Let me say about that, you have to be so careful. And again, I I know I'm emphasizing the youth. I I think that they are dealing with this more. And if I'm wrong, some of you more mature people are dealing with this. Well, you take it in. But I feel the need to apply it to the younger ones because they're the ones being attacked. They're the ones that are facing this kind of reasoning. And they meet people. And they tell them that they are of this persuasion other gender fluid, or whatever it might be, and they try to persuade you 
that their experience is definitive, that it is objective, that it is the basis upon which they determine who they are. But your experience, your experience is not definitive. No person's experience is definitive. As a Christian, you must confess that truth is what God says it is, and people are what God say they, says they are. And if God has made one a man, they're a man. If God has made them woman, they're a woman. It doesn't matter what their experience is, how they feel. That doesn't change the reality. And I know it's so hard because you meet these people, they see, seem so friendly, so kind, but it is very deceptive. And you can't help them if you enter into their lie. You can't help them if you accept the grounds of the reality when it is opposed to how God defines reality. So if you let them believe their lie, continue on in that vein, you have just let them go on. It's like watching a man who's in a boat or barely swimming along trying to survive in a mighty current and he's heading down into a great waterfall that's going to kill him and you're just kind of waving by the side. I have no problem with where you... He looks com comfortable. He looks fine. He's heading there. He doesn't realize what's coming and you're just waving by the side of the river. All the best. You can't do that. If you have any heart for them, there has to be, and I'm not saying being rude. I'm not saying being some kind of way that you're obnoxious about it, but get your way in there. Get their confidence and tell them the truth as God has revealed it. We, can't, we cannot step into their world and allow them to define reality on their own terms. But we can tell them, you're not your sin. You can tell them that God has defined humanity. He's defined who you are. And your sinful inclinations, your powerful temptations have no need to define you. God has already defined you. You're not trying to discover yourself. My, is it not liberating to know that you don't have to try and discover what God has already revealed? And is this not why so many of them are, are, are overwhelmed with depression? Because they're trying to discover something that God's already made plain. Here's who you are. Here is what you need. Here is how you live joyfully before the Lord. This is, this is where joy and happiness is found. Fulfilling God's purpose in your life. Beware. Paul writes in Colossians 2 verses 8 and 9. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to know truth? You go to Christ. You don't go to the rudiments of the world, the traditions of men, the nonsense of the culture. You go to Christ. And so, when He asks, Whom say the people that I am? The answering and said, John the Baptist, Elias, one of the old prophets, risen again. They are giving a synopsis of what the world has to say. But this will not do. If they accept this, if they believe this themselves, they are lost. If they are on a point where they're saying, yes, well, I'm kind of being partly persuaded by the argument that you're Elijah. If they do that, they are lost. And so in this sense, it is a test of genuine conversion. They must know and reject the ideas of the world, as must we. Beloved, be careful. Be careful. Watch your soul. Keep your heart with all diligence. Be aware of the deceptions of every generation they have a way of twisting and turning and distorting themselves to fit the present time in such a way where they have this magnetic pull where we feel we have to adopt it, at least in part, or at least say, I'm not sure it's right, but I'm not going to say it is wrong. Secondly, 
You must know and confess the person of Christ. You must know and confess the person of Christ. Verse 20, he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter, answering on behalf of them all, Peter answering said, The Christ of God. The Christ of God. I want us to notice two things here. First of all, the inception of this confession. The inception of this confession. This, of course, was not a new discovery for the apostles. It's not the first time they're aware of this. It's not the first time they have indicated their understanding of this. But now it's a settled conviction. But why was it so clear to them when it wasn't to others? How come there's no hesitation by Peter here? How come it seems so clear to him and to the rest of them when everyone else is perplexed and wondering, who is he? Matthew records this event. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 16. He actually gives a fuller account of this event, this narrative, this part of the ministry of Christ. Matthew 16. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Here you find in verse 17 the inception of this confession, how it came to be. And this takes me back, actually, to Luke's little detail of the fact that Jesus was in prayer. I'm sure that in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he covered many things. But I wonder, I wonder if included in his prayer was this burden that his disciples would come to a settled conviction as to who he is. This is how the man of God would pray. This is how the Apostle Paul prayed, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. He prayed for the Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So Paul prayed to a church, those who professed faith in Christ, who knew the Lord savingly, and yet prays that they would, they, would, they would have more wisdom, more revelation in the knowledge of Christ, more understanding, their eyes of their understanding being enlightened. Why? So that they could come to a, a more settled conviction about the truth. And perhaps this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is praying. I can't say for sure, of course, but perhaps this is part of why Luke puts this in. Because the disciples coming to this conviction was not of the flesh. It was not because they were smarter or because they, more, they frequented more sermons or because they had greater insight and more spiritual understanding naturally because they'd gone to the schools of the rabbis. It's not because of that. He reveals in Matthew 16 verse 17 the only reason the inception of this confession is with the Father who enabled them to understand. So the Lord Jesus Christ goes into a solitary place to pray. And in part, he is looking to the Father and crying out, Give them understanding. Father, open their eyes. Father, help them understand. Unveil a greater revelation of me to them. And then in answer to prayer, he asks them, he tests them. He queries to see whether or not they understand. And they pass the test. This is how men come to believe. It is a work of God. It is always a work of God. This is how men are saved. They're saved because 
flesh and blood has not revealed it unto them, but the Father which is in heaven. So, believer, what do you need to do more of as you bear the burden of unconverted loved ones? What do you need to do? What's the answer? If flesh and blood can't reveal it, you can't reveal it. You can't help them understand. You can't make them get it. You can't do it. And the DVDs and the tracts and the books, the literature, the videos, the little sermons that you might send them, all the efforts of evangelism, which I'm not saying stop, I'm just saying you can't do it. Nothing you do can help them understand who Jesus Christ is. It can't bring them, it can't get them to make a confession that you're the Christ of God. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal it. The Father. The Father reveals it. So what do we do, church? If we want to see loved ones saved, what do we do? We go to the Father. As Jesus was doing. As he was alone. Praying. Calling out to the Father. Because flesh and blood couldn't enable them to understand. But my Father, which is in heaven. We need to learn this and then we need to relearn it. And then we need to go back and learn it again. And then we need a fresh crash course to relearn it. The fact that we can't make people understand who Jesus is and commit themselves to him and make a confession that he is the Christ of God. We need to learn to pray. We need to relearn to pray. We need to know what it is to wait on God and this is where we are weakest. I have no doubt in my mind that that is where the church by and large is weakest. And I include ourselves. So when I see just even a little indication of greater interest in the place of prayer, on a Wednesday or another time, I just I say, thank you, Lord. But I look at my own heart, I look at all of us, and I think, Lord, there is much more ground to be possessed in this area. They can't confess unless the Father reveals it. It's impossible. It's like Tozer said. I think I've shared this before. I'm on Tozer had that big church in Southside, in Chicago. 1,500 people, whatever size it was. You looked at all the activity and everything that was going on, massive ministries. And in a sermon, he acknowledged, sometimes I think it would be best for us just to shut everything down and seek the Lord. Just stop it all. Just, just, just take a season, number of weeks, and we do nothing but pray and see what God would do. You see, we know that we need God's help, and we do all our labors knowing we need the Lord's help, but extended seasons, having ministry, various junctures through ministry, various seasons through ministry where we make a concerted effort to more apply ourselves in the place of prayer, I think is very important. And that's why Luke records these seasons of the Lord praying, going into a mountain to pray, going into the wilderness to pray, 
He couldn't exist continually without the seasons of prolonged intercession with the Father. It couldn't be done. The ministry couldn't be done. You say, well, he's the Son of God. I said, look, I, I can't explain it all. I can't explain it. All I know is that he needed to get to the Father and to pray. And so I'm convicted by this afresh. Setting aside seasons, extended seasons for prayer. So we have not only the inception of this confession, but the importance of this confession. The importance of it. Going back to our text. Because what does Peter say? What is the answer? The Christ of God. Christ means anointed one. It's not a last name. And this is, this is an aside completely. <laughs> I need to stop. I, I don't know. This is one of the things that seems to be taking longer for me to learn. But in the UK, we tend to talk about surnames. And we, instead of last names, we say surnames. And the number of times I, they've said, I've, I've said what their, their surname, ask people what their surname, what's your surname? And they say, pardon? And I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I said, what's the right last name? I don't know what that is. It just keeps sticking there. But anyway, this is not a last name. This is not a surname. This is not a family name. This is a title. Jesus the Christ is the Christ of God. The Anointed One is a title given to the one anticipated by the Jews to come and be their deliverer, anointed to be their deliverer. In Daniel chapter 9, one of Daniel's visions, verse 25, I'll read that portion. You may want to turn it up if you're unfamiliar with it. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we read there, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So here's giving indication of the coming Messiah and his work. He's going to be cut off, but not for himself. It's going to be offered up. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And so the Jews were anticipating this. They were, they were looking for this. They were looking for the Messiah. Andrew came to Simon Peter in John 1.41 and said, We've found the Messiah. Peter, we've found the Messiah. And, and the reason that was important was because they had spent their entire life growing up saying that we're anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. We're a people looking for the Messiah. We go to the synagogue. We hear about the certainty of the coming of the Messiah. And for generations, for centuries, we've been waiting for this. And our fathers have talked about it. And, and now I'm telling you, Peter, we, we have found the Messiah. The Samaritan woman in John 4.25 says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. Thus, this confession is crucial. It expresses not a belief in the flesh and the pan philosopher, but a belief that is rooted in the history of redemption. This is the one they've all been waiting for. The world has been waiting for, foretold from Genesis chapter 3. The Messiah the Christ of God. He is the anointed one, promised by God, sent by God, who is God. And this is what Peter is answering and saying, the Christ of God. There's no one else. This isn't a prophet. This is the prophet. This isn't a Messiah. This is the Messiah. So this is vital. There could not be a more important confession. You have to be able to confess this. It's not everything. It's not the whole orb of what we must confess. But it is crucial. And that's what I say. It, it is a test. It's not the test of genuine conversion, but it's a test. And can you say tonight, can you say that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God? When you read the Old Testament Scriptures, do you see him prophesied? Do you get excited about the prospect of him coming? Can you feel the sense of anticipation of his arrival? When you read the New Testament, and you have, especially in this gospel, Luke's gospel, the excitement that arises in the early chapters where everyone's just overwhelmed with joy because he has come. He, he has come. The Messiah has arrived. Can you enter into that joy? Do you feel it? Do you, does your heart move out in the sense of this fulfillment of all the anticipation that the one God promised to save us from our sins has come? Does that expression of the hymn writer come out of your heart? Hallelujah! What a Savior! 
Is that since there's no greater joy than the fact that God who promised a deliverer has sent a deliverer, he has come, he has done the work, he has died and ascended, and he now ever lives to pray for us, and he is gathering in his people from all the nations, and I'm one of them. He is the Christ of God. He has no competitor. He is my Redeemer. He is my Savior. He is the one I rest in entirely. I hope you can confess Him to be not just the Christ of God, but your Savior, the Christ that you rest in, that has delivered you from your sins. Thirdly, you must know and embrace the work of Christ. You must know and embrace the work of Christ. Verse 21, And He straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. In other words, He's at this time... He's not looking for them to go and spread this confession, varying ideas as to why that might be, but I'm not going to focus on that just now. But verse 22 is saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day. Now what follows here is not understood by the disciples. So Christ is revealing more than they grasp at this point. And He calls Himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And again, this is significant. This is a title where they're hearing it as they have been taught to hear it. It's not just a title you throw in there, but it has certain prophetic significance. So again, in Daniel chapter 7, if you're not familiar, it may do good for you to turn it up. Daniel 7 verse 13. In another vision of Daniel, he records, I saw in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. What a prophecy! You see, you and I are the fulfillment of this. The only reason we're sitting here in this building doing what we're doing is because this has come to pass. That centuries ago, when Daniel was shown a vision and given insight and understanding that the Son of Man will come and this Son of Man will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him There should be a gathering. It doesn't matter about the borders and the distinctions between nationalities. He is going to embrace them all, gather them all in. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And so it has proven true. 2,000 years has his kingdom faded. Has it failed? Has it been extinguished amidst all the efforts of other religions and various secularists and philosophers who prophesied of the demise of the Christian faith, has it come to pass? Is it going to come to pass when you look at the West and certain parts and the, the, the mighty ingathering of, of Muslims and their, their, their greater rate of, 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 of procreation having more children than, than, than those from the Christian West? And you wonder, is, is this going to be the end? Is, is Christianity going to be extinguished? No. No, Europe may become Muslim, but it won't extinguish the church. The church will continue. It will always exist. And you don't need to fear, child of God. You do not need to fear. You never need to be concerned because this Christ of God has a kingdom and everything. Well, look at it. One like the Son of Man coming, and He's given dominion and so on. The fact that He has come in terms of His arrival to lay the foundation of the shedding of His blood to bring to pass everything that is prophesied should enable us to just rest in the reality that everything else that is prophesied will come to pass. How will the Son of Man lay claim to His kingdom? How is He going to do it? Going back to our text, how is he going to do it? What needs to be done before he can lay claim to his kingdom? Well, 
There's a fourfold work. Look at verse 22. It tells us he must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. So he will be the suffering Messiah. Go to Isaiah 53. Just to see these words reflected in the prophecy of Isaiah 53. This is wonderful. It should give us great encouragement. I know this passage is familiar to many of you. See again what it is that the Lord has done. So he says to them, they don't get this yet. You say, well, did they not read Isaiah 53? Yes, they did, but... (laughs) They were so consumed with the victory of Messiah, the idea of a dying one, couldn't be entertained. But now he's saying, he's feeding them clearly. This is what must happen. He will be the suffering Messiah. Look at chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 4. It tells us, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's going to bear our griefs, carry our sorrows. You look at all the other things that are mentioned about him, all the suffering that he endures, but, but this, is, this is the heart of it. He is carrying griefs. He is bearing, he's bearing griefs. He is carrying our sorrows. And so he is suffering. He must suffer many things. He must suffer, and this is going to come to pass, and he's, he's, he's bearing it all. He's having it all laid upon him, and so he will suffer. They're looking to him as the victorious, reigning king, and yet he must suffer. We will see this in due course as we progress through the gospel. He will also be the rejected Messiah. It is prophesied of him again. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. So whenever we read of those that rejected him, and especially coming up to the cross and the utter rejection of of those that were making decisions, the elders, the chief priests and scribes, those who ought to have known better, those familiar with the Old Testament who had made a study of the Word of God, they're rejecting him. And it doesn't matter what is said, it doesn't matter how it's argued, it doesn't matter what evidence is put before them, they are rejecting. He will be the slain Messiah. Again, verse 5 of the chapter, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Look at verse 7 as well. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. What a way to describe the death of Jesus Christ. Brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Dear friends, understand this. This is demanded because of the gravity of disobedience against God. The Father appoints for His Son that He would be brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because man can never be saved if he's not. To make it personal, you cannot be saved if he is not. And so you have this one prophesied in Daniel 7. This one coming in clouds and the grandeur of his kingdom and his, his power over all realms. And that all will serve him. Here is one that exceeds the brilliance and the greatness and the grandeur of the greatest kings, of the greatest pharaohs, of the greatest emperors. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. You talk about submission. You talk about resignation. And the disciples, the disciples, they're going to struggle with this. And even when they see it, right before their eyes, they're still going to struggle. 
with the significance of it, the importance of it, the crucial nature of it. They, they just can't take it. You and me are so familiar with it. The first time the gospel was ever preached to us, the first time Jesus was ever preached to us, probably we were told about the cross and the significance of the cross and the sufferings and the bleedings and the dyings of the Lamb of God. Our first introduction to the Messiah was the fact that He's a dying Messiah. But not to the Jew. He's a king. He's coming to reign. He's coming to sweep away our enemies. He's going to come and, and, and bring the glory days in, greater than even in Solomon's day. He cannot be as a lamb led to the slaughter. That cannot be. So they struggled. And so there's a sense in which we should, we should step into their shoes, not, not to disbelieve it, but to try and understand something of the impossibility of it. It can't be. How can it be that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, made flesh, comes to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Bearing grief and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And he will be the resurrected Messiah. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. So there it is. When thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Hang on a minute. How will he see his seed when he's made an offering for sin? How? That by being made an offering for sin, he gathers in his seed. He brings in the elect. He sweeps in the nations. He purchases eternal salvation to them that believe. And so he sees it because he rises. This, this, this is the offering for sin. This is the sacrifice that doesn't remain on the altar. This is a sacrifice, the sacrifice that rises and sees. What does he see? He sees a seed. His days are prolonged, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There will be, there'll be a flourishing of his kingdom. Because he rises from the dead, and he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He'll look with joy. Yes, the joy that was set before him. He endures the cross. He submits to being a lamb led to the slaughter because he is the resurrected Messiah. He will rise from the dead. And this is all to come, beloved. This is all to come. And he is giving them a little insight and as you well know, those of you familiar, they will not fully get this. But this, this is part of what we ultimately confess, isn't it? We confess Him. We embrace the work of Christ, not just confess the person of Christ. Because it's by that that we live. All that He has done what, what, a, what a way to abbreviate what he had come to do for us. Suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, chief priests and scribes, be slain, be raised the third day. One of the tests of genuine conversion is confession. So let me ask you, let me ask you plainly, if there is any shame in your heart, any hesitation in your life to confess 
Jesus as the Christ and as your Redeemer and Savior. Has the world silenced you? The disciples did not have a perfect faith. They didn't fully get everything. But neither do we. We don't have a perfect faith. But what we must have, as they had, is a confessed faith. It's not always going to be perfect, but it must be confessed. We must confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. And if we don't, you can't be saved. Confession is vital. So I ask you, have you confessed Christ? Have you confessed him as yours? Do you confess him as yours? Do you rejoice in him as your redeemer, your savior, the lover of your soul, the purchaser of your salvation, the one who has given you eternal life? Is he the, the reason for why you're here? Is he the, the desire of your heart? Is he the objective of your life? So it was for Peter. Oh, we, we know all too well the failures of Peter and the other disciples, but, but they, they, had, they had somewhat counted the cost. And they were amidst the entire world saying other things about him. No, you're the Christ of God. Will you stand apart and be counted for Christ? Are you trying to blend in? Are you trying to be like a chameleon in the world so the world doesn't know that you know and love Christ and commit it to his truth as he proclaims it? Are you trying to blend in? Be as acceptable as possible. Now is the time for standing for Christ, for being bold, for being courageous, for making no apologies, being charitable, but being bold, confessing Christ for who he is, what he has done, and all that he means to you. The Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me ask you again whether or not you're saved. And I ask you directly because I'm not in the business of trying to hide away or trying to skirt around the issue. You need to be saved. The Bible tells you when to be saved. It says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If you're not comfortable with that, bring your argument before God. For those not saved, the time to be saved is now. It's always now. It is today. And so if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Confess Christ. What are your friends ever going to do for you? Can they save you? No. Can they bring great joy to your life? Temporarily, perhaps. But when you're dying, they will offer no hope. They can bring no comfort. The greatest comfort man can know is to know as God, to have his sins forgiven, and be ready to meet his Creator. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. And I urge you, seek him now. Seek him tonight while you may. Our God and Father, we pray, we ask, use thy word. Use it in the lives of thy people so that we are more bold, that we are more resolved to own thy Son. And use it in the lives of those who are halting between two opinions. They're here tonight because they appreciate something of the gospel, but they also have one foot in the world, and they're not prepared to step out and own Christ, no matter what rejection that might bring. God, have mercy on such tonight, we pray. Help them to own the Redeemer, the Saviour. Grant, O God in heaven, that they will know the joy 
the liberating joy of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ as the crucified and risen Redeemer, the one who has washed away our sins and made us kings and priests unto God. So bless this people, bless this church this week. Strengthen our testimony in this community. and Enable us to face every trial in a way that glorifies thy name. Go with us as we go downstairs and as well as we make our way home, we pray for thy presence. Bless the food that's provided for us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.